Wow, I truly love what I do. I had another amazing conversation, this time with Lauren Wegman, the global head of people analytics at Twitter. From her early days as a ballerina, to her sharing her educational experience at the University of Georgia, to the early part of her career where she was doing survey research, to her eventually helping facilitate the integration of two large companies, to where she is now as not only a people analytics leader, but someone who's influencing the community. Uh, I'm privileged to facilitate this discussion. I know, I know with a high degree of confidence that you'll not only enjoy the conversation, but you'll find it inspiring and enlightening. So thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting the People Analysts in the Future of Work community and uh, hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome back. Lauren, how are you? Oh, doing well, Al. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I am extraordinarily excited to be talking with you. Uh, you lead People Analytics at Twitter. Uh, I love what you've had to share on the Profile Live episodes that you've contributed to. Uh, your narrative around how People Analytics can guide the future of work has been inspirational to me, and I know a lot of people within the community. If you would, share a little bit about you know who you are and what you do there at Twitter beyond what I shared. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, hi, everyone. So happy to be here. I'm Lauren Wegman. I lead the People Analytics team at, at Twitter, as Al said. Um, prior to Twitter, I worked at uh, Verizon Media. Uh, prior to that, I worked at um, Yahoo uh, while the Verizon merger was happening. So got to see Yahoo and AOL kind of come together under, um, under the parent company of Verizon. So um, I have a, a, a pretty strong track record of working within the tech industry, especially around disruptive uh, companies within tech. And I think that that has really spurred me into um, just an absolute love of, of people analytics and, and understanding of the power and the um, potential that it can bring to organizations. Um, so that's that's kind of my uh, professional. Let me go. Let me go back in time, Al. You want to you want to hear? Kind of where I'm from and all you know, that yeah, stuff. absolutely. Because you, you and I have talked now and through this forum, you know, for a while, and we're going to see each other in person next week uh, there in Atlanta. And yeah, likewise. And so, you know, how people get into this field, because you have an uncommonly clear narrative uh, around people and its value to organizations, as you just touched on. But how did you get here? You know, what what's your educational background? What inspired you to get into the field? Yeah, well, I um, I grew up in uh, in Georgia um, and went to the University of Georgia for, for my undergrad. I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Um, so, you know, was taking all of the fun uh, biology, chemistry courses. Um, I uh, volunteered in a psychology lab um, to get uh, some experience uh, within, you know, kind of getting my hands on understanding, you know, what is research and, you know, how do you how do you measure um, anxiety, right? Or or how do you how do you understand emotion regulation? Um, and I actually was in a um, a parent and child. Um, kind of emotional regulation lab where we studied the interactions between the parents and the child. Um, and what I fell in love with there was not so much the the kind of behavioral aspects, but it was much more around how you go about measuring behavior. 
Uh, so I really, I really fell in love with um, kind of the, the measurement instruments, right? Um, and so that kind of switched gears for me from um, psychiatry into psychology. Uh, and during my, let me think, I think it was my last semester before I had to submit my application for graduate school, I took a um, psychology of the workforce course. Um, and that just completely changed my trajectory once again. Um, so instead of going into kind of clinical where you were you know, doing consulting or clinical lab work, um, I now knew that I wanted to get into workplace psychology or industrial organizational psychology. Um, so I uh, luckily <laughs> uh, was accepted uh, to, to graduate school. I actually stayed at the University of Georgia uh, for my master's and PhD there. Um, which is not very usual, um, but I was working with an absolutely phenomenal um, IO psychologist professor, Brian Hoffman, um, just amazing researcher. Um, I can't say enough great things about him. And um, he, uh, he took me in as, a, you know, as my mentor. Um, and a University of Georgia, I think, was a really good, uh, was a really good choice, uh, at, least at, the, at least at the time, because it, um, it's one of the top uh, five IO psychology programs in the, in the nation. Um, and additionally, when I was there, at least, it had a very, very strong measurement and statistics background, along with um, some really solid um, researchers and professors within um, the, the IND space, which at that time wasn't as big as it is today. Um, and also within um, some of the um, like performance and um, leadership studies space. Uh, so while in grad school, um, I started researching the changing nature of work, uh, which nowadays uh, is a hot topic um, around uh, or called the future of work more so than the changing nature of work. Um, but I became very, very interested in understanding and documenting have changes actually occurred within work, the worker, um, or the workplace? And if so, to what magnitude? Uh, and what is the impact uh, for those changes on, um, on employee behavior or on employee attitudes? And so it was a kind of a multiple different studies there. But um, what I found in my thesis was that we were able to document going back to 1975 that work characteristics themselves so like the building blocks of work have been um, have been changing uh, since since 1975 and specifically things like autonomy so you you have much more autonomy on average in a typical job today than you did uh, back in back in the 70s and 80s you have a lot more uh, demand for the number of skills that you have to use on the job um, today as well and greater amounts of um, um, needing uh, to work with others, so like interdependent work. Uh, and what we what we then found kind of throughout grad school uh, research studies was while these seem like they're a good thing, like, oh my gosh, you know, I would like more autonomy in my job. I, I, I like flexing different skills. And um, what it ended up kind of showing was that they actually have a, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, so there's a negative to this, and that negative comes in the form of of um, um, work-life balance or, or, or work-life uh, conflict more so, um, decreases in job satisfaction, decreases in um, kind of coworker managerial satisfaction, um, 
uh, uh, increases in burnout, specifically emotional exhaustion. So this all uh, <laughs> this all was conducted back way before COVID and way before we were, you know, talking about these concepts of you know psychological safety, these concepts of um, energy and resilience. Um, and it was really, um, I think, revolutionary within that that time period. Um, so I. Uh, I guess back to kind of my personal story there. I got a little swooped up in research, which which no, I love happen. it. <laughs> you go, girl. I mean, I got coming out of there, but it's you know, fantastic. So, no, did you grow up there in Georgia, or you? What, um... So I um, I was born in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, mm-hmm. and then moved to Indiana. Uh, we lived in uh, West Lafayette, outside of Purdue, or around Purdue, uh, and then um, when I was Twelve, we moved to Georgia. Okay, and that uh, so you weren't far from home. It sounds like during your your academic you know career. So yeah. you go through Georgia. Yeah, you're there. How many years? Well, undergrad is four, um, masters is two, and PhD is an additional three. I'll say. So, so you, it's Athens. Is that correct? Athens, Georgia. Yep. Go yeah. Bulldogs. Go Bulldogs! You know Athens really well. <laughs> so you with that, what what happened afterwards? Where, where'd you go right uh, when you finished your PhD? Well, I thought honestly, I thought that I wanted to be a professor. Um, I love research. I still do research to this day. Um, I love presenting. I love teaching. Um, and I was really strong in the measurement and in the the statistics side, which which you, you need to be in order to keep up with the publishing. Um, but uh, in in studying the changing nature of work, it it quickly hit me that I'm not really going to understand what work is from this seat in academia. So I made the the conscious decision that I wanted to get into the applied world. I wanted to understand not just what is work and how is it changing, but what I can do to make work better for employees, for leaders, for managers, um, especially with my knowledge of the changing nature of work and the implications thereof. And so I, um, I did a little research uh, and I quickly realized that the most fast paced, the most change, the most kind of experimentation, um, at least from my opinion at this time, was coming from the tech industry. So I, uh, I needed to get myself out to Silicon Valley, um, and I did. I, um, I actually, right out of grad school, joined a very, very small startup um, that was looking at predictive modeling and kind of, um, or more or less embedding predictive modeling into kind of employee surveys, which was a little bit new um, at that time. And so I became their um, West Coast um consultant. Uh, and through that job, actually got to go into uh, a ton of um, a ton of really big companies who um, I had only, you know, dreamed of ever setting my foot in at that point and kind of got to see and, you know, hear those questions. And I, I'm so thankful for that experience, um, some of which were in tech and, and some of which were, uh, were, were not. But it's, um, it's very, uh, it was very helpful uh, having those perspectives. Um, and then a, a year or so after that, got recruited uh, to um, go to Yahoo, um, and, um, and and yeah, I, I moved up into the head of people analytics uh, at Yahoo. Wow! So that happened over, if I'm doing my math right, three or four years. Yeah, it was very fast. 
very yeah. fast. Yeah, oh, and there's, a, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong from your perspective, is there's been an undersupply of talent to do this work called people yes. analytics because you're coming in with an IO psychology perspective. There are others who have entered in the discipline from a tech perspective or a finance perspective. There's a variety of data science perspective. So it's great to know that you're coming in not only with this background in quantitative research, but this passion to understand the nature of work and how it affects us human beings. Yeah. So, you know, with that, now you're at Yahoo, you go over to Warner Media. Is that right? Um, so I stayed at Yahoo, but uh, Verizon purchased Yahoo. Oh, wow. And so then I was responsible for um, helping bring uh, Yahoo and AOL together under one um, one company, which at that time uh, was called Oath and then later became Verizon Media. Oh, wow. So you're, uh, <laughs> you're doing, there's no shortage of work, in other words. No, you know, absolutely well, not. Yeah, let, let me ask you, at, at this time, you, you dealt with a merger. Did they have a team as well? Did you have to get involved in bringing teams together? Or were you uh, leading a process and set of uh, technologies that, the, uh, that Verizon did not have? You know, what was that um, merger look like from your, from your perspective? Yeah. Um, well, it was it was uh, Yahoo and AOL were merging together, um, and AOL actually um, had a amazing um, IO psychologist Kelsey Wise, who is now a member of my team uh, at Twitter, um, leading our survey efforts. So um, quickly, <laughs> quickly uh, befriended Kelsey, and together we launched the very first survey um, of kind of AOL and Yahoo. Um, before they were merged together. So we launched these simultaneous surveys um, to the different you know, organizational populations that had the exact same items, the you know, exact same timing, the exact same tool, um, and were for the first time ever able to get, uh, get a pulse right, on this soon-to-be new um, employee population called Oath. Well, yes, how did that go? Was it the same survey instrument for both companies? It was. Mm -hmm. And you, I imagine you compared the data and, uh, yep. yeah. And yeah, it was really helpful in that, um, you know, I think, I think, uh, being on only one side of a, of a merger or acquisition, you're, you're missing, I think some of the, um, some of the perspective from the other, which I think could be why some of these mergers aren't as successful. Um, and so we were really cognizant of that going into this and, we um, we cared uh, about the culture and we cared about identifying the culture and we cared about understanding what's working and what's not working on both sides. Um, and so, you know, even small things during a during such an uncertain time like that go a really long way with giving you know your employees comfort and um, support. Uh, and so it, it's the little things at that time that really count. And, um, and the survey was really helpful in, in shedding light on some of what those were at that time. Now, who is the customer for the insight that you generated? And let me frame the question a little bit more, because when a big merger is happening like that, there's consulting firms in there. There's you know, individual uh, uh, 
in individual consultants sometimes that are maybe not part of bigger firms, you know, offering advice and ways to uh, merge work at a team level, for example. So anyway, there's a lot of voices. So you know, who was your customer for the insights that you were generating? And did you feel that those insights were acted upon appropriately? Yeah. Um, well, at that time, we had named who would become the CHRO of, um, of the combined company. Um, and that was the previous uh, CHRO from AOL, um, Bob Tui, amazing. Uh, he's now at CHRO at Allstate. Um, and so he was, he was our main customer. Um, and he um, was a, is and was a huge supporter of analytics, was a huge supporter of um, data-driven decisions, uh, and really helped my team get, uh, get a seat at the table and a voice uh, to to you know his his peers his manager um, and those who are making decisions around you know what what these results are saying um, and uh, I think that um, I think that he he just did a really good job of bringing those two companies together at that time. You know, just to stay on this point because you know we have a ton of other things to talk about than based on what you're doing now at Twitter and where you see the world of work going, and specifically people analytics and workforce planning to address those future uh, changes. Uh, just to you know wrap this up on this part, at least from my perspective, is what I really am intrigued by is that you led this internally. The, the idea that there's consulting firms, both you know, survey research firms, a big uh, consulting firms that facilitate this, oftentimes they want to put their survey instruments in there. But it sounds like you as internal practitioners owned the survey design and the use after the fact. Would you advocate that as a, for lack of a better term, leading practice uh, versus just taking something off the shelf from a vendor, albeit they might be valuable, but it doesn't sound like you believe they would be as valuable as something generated internally. Well, budget is always a consideration too, right? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think I, I go back and forth on this and I really think that it depends on the situation at hand. Um, we were lucky in that we had the skill set, we had the tools, and we had both sides of understanding of what these cultures are, who are the players, and what are the potential pitfalls, and what are we trying to achieve together, um, which I think is harder for a consultant to come in um, without spending a lot of time, right, and, and pick up on that, that information. Um, so we were able to move a lot faster. Um, and we had complete control over the survey instrument, the timing, not to mention like data privacy, data governance, and, and all of that good stuff, um, along with reporting as well. So um, another kind of, I, I don't want to say negative, but a, a normal a, a normal thing with working with a consultancy that does surveys is that there is a period of time after the survey closes to where you're waiting for your, your results, um, especially if you're kind of, if you're doing it with two separate populations that then you, you need to bring together in some capacity. Um, and because, uh, you know, we were, we were internal and we were scrappy and we were working crazy hours anyway, we were able to turn this around a lot quicker and provide those insights to, to leadership in, um, in a much faster time. And I think that that was very helpful um, it, at the time because of the speed that we were trying to um, implement. Uh, that's, that's great perspective. Thank you for sharing. And so, where did you go from there? Let's see. Um, so I was there about 
about three and a half years. And so then worked under, um, worked under Bob Dewey, uh, the CHRO, um, and built out the people analytics team uh, at, uh, at then called Oath. Um, Kelsey Wise uh, remained on my team, grew the team, um, and I um, also inherited uh, reporting as well as, as analytics at that time. So I got to uh, learn a, a, different, um, a different but related area. Uh, and I think um, I was just very, um, it was just a very nice growth opportunity uh, for, for me to learn a different kind of skill set and a different um, uh, different um, needs and, and perspectives from the business as it relates to specifically reporting. Um, and then- May, may I, I jump in there real quick? Yeah, it's yeah, Sorry course. to interrupt, but I, I want to okay. highlight this point because I, it, it's something that I think is misunderstood by many because there's some who think, okay, right, we, we need analytics. And that conjures up a picture of a dashboard with pretty colors and graphs and trend lines and, and all this other stuff. And still to others, analytics is a product, you know, that might have ML underneath it that generates, you know, an output at scales to others. It might be a research project that goes investigate a certain dynamic, you know, at a certain point in time. So how did you distinguish between people analytics and reporting? And in turn, how did you communicate that differentiation, you know, to your customers within uh, your company? Yeah, I think very simply. <laughs> so reporting was if you need data and analytics is if you need math. And so, um, and we, we kept that, that deviation separate as well. And I, and I still keep it separate. And I think that those are different skill sets. Those are different questions. And yes, there needs to be communication among both of them. Um, but sometimes you're going to need line item data. And sometimes you're going to need to know counts, averages, trends, you know, you, you name it. Um, and um, that can come out of different tools uh, as well. So, so yeah, so that's, that's a little bit about kind of the <laughs> in a nutshell, the distinguishing factor there. But then I also set up different leads over, you know, the different areas to, um, and it was it was really actually helpful having reporting. I was a little skeptical of it um, because I didn't want it to, to I didn't want it to take away from my passion area, which is you know getting more advanced within um, with we're bringing the company into predictive modeling. Um, but what it actually enabled was it enabled us to have a much better understanding of what data our customers are looking for. Um, and instead of just, hey, Al, you know, I need to know, I need a list of all of the employees in Ireland. You know, you can be like, oh, okay, what are you doing with that? Why do you need it? Maybe, maybe you actually, maybe you actually need a count and not a list of all the employees in Ireland. And so it was, it was really helpful in that we could, um, we could kind of create a, a more custom solution and also share it with broader audiences. That's, that's another thing. Um, sometimes, for example, an HRBP can come to you and say, hey, you know, for my, my client group, I'm, I'm really interested in X, Y, and Z. Well, if that HRBP is interested in it and that client group is interested in it, you know, probably other HRBPs and other client groups are interested in that too. Um, and so it, it makes it more, um, it, it makes it scalable and less uh, kind of bespoke, um, bespoke uh, responses. 
Oh, thank you. Know, th thank you for sharing. And uh, you know, just to highlight, I love what you shared earlier. I'm going to have to write that down and get that out to the world, amplify <laughs> it, because uh, you know, analytics is when you need math and uh, reporting is when you need data. So that's, uh, that's beautiful. Very concise, yeah. clear. And you also uh, emphasize that there are two different skill sets, which I think is not often understood. It's just you don't hire data scientists and all of a sudden have him or her just crank out reports all day and vice versa. You don't have someone who's you know, creating data schemas and, you know, all of a sudden do a structural equation modeling or something. You know, it's not going to, you will, you will burn them out. You yeah. will, you will burn them out. Um, and on that quote, that is not an original quote from me. Um, that is a quote from my um, people data science lead, Dave Siri, uh, as he is the one who is normally um, kind of deciding, is this something that analytics takes on or is this something that, you know, needs reporting? Um, so I wanted to give him credit for that amazing quote. Yeah, no, it, it's it's wonderful. So yeah, thanks, David. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you. So, okay, so you're there. And so I, I interrupted you, you're bringing those together. And, you know, where'd you go from there? Bringing those together. Uh, that was my first um, opportunity to be on the people leadership team uh, and to um, to work directly with the CHRO and, and the C-suite, uh, which was just an amazing opportunity to hear the types of questions that they're, uh, you know, that they're asking. I worked really closely with um, the strategy and ops uh, leads as well. So got into a lot of workforce planning um um, high, or hygiene, uh, and that was a whole new kind of avenue for, for me as well, coming from psychology, um, which is much more focused on, you know, human behavior, right, and, and attitudes and perceptions and less on kind of like strategic planning and capacity planning. And so um, I, uh, I loved, I loved learning that space. And those are, those are skills that I, I, I flex today. Um, and I just have such an appetite to continue to grow within, within those areas. Um, but yeah, so after, uh, so after the three and a half years or so um, at Oath, um, I got recruited uh, to uh, join Twitter. I wasn't, wasn't looking um, by any means, but um it uh, it just seemed like after talking to some of the leaders and some of the um, folks at Twitter, uh, it it seemed like uh, it was going to be a really um, I want to say like a, a really ripe environment for people analytics. Um, and so I I couldn't I couldn't turn it down. I, I saw the potential, um, and I love how Twitter is just so data driven. Uh, and and I think a lot of HR companies or a lot of HR departments say that they're data-driven. Um, and while we're not perfect by any means, um, we, we really, really try and really invest within, um, within uh, being data-driven in, in HR. And so I loved that. I also loved um, this uh, kind of uh, culture for experimentation, this culture for collaboration. Um, and yeah, I uh, couldn't be happier. I, I, Love a company. Hashtag love where you work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Outstanding. Sneak that in there. Get your Twitter handle in here before too long. Uh, I want to just highlight something which is somewhat obvious. And I want, if you would, to answer this from the perspective of, or for rather, a young IO psychologist or someone who is in their 
educational years or college years and thinking about a career in people analytics. And so the question is going to invite you to talk about yourself, which I know and knowing you a bit now, it might be not um, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, not a favorite. But it, it is the case where you have achieved a high level of influence a relatively early stage of your career. And you've done that in a variety of settings, variety of companies. What are some of the key attributes that you think you possess that have enabled you to not only get into these roles, but to be successful at these roles and gain the respect and admiration of colleagues and then, you know, go to other organizations and in turn, you know, do it over. So, you know, again, what are your thoughts there? Deep question, Al, deep question. Um, yeah. So, well, looking looking back, um, it was really hard to break into people analytics, honestly, uh, from a IO psychology background, especially at that time, um, because IO psychology tended to be more on the East Coast um, and not so much on the on the West Coast. So folks didn't know what it was. Um, and so, you know, looking at job descriptions, they were uh, not mentioning, you know, psychology or, or, or management. Um, and so then I, I learned very quickly that I had to, I had to figure out what my brand was. I had to figure out how I wanted to, um, how I wanted to break into this, this field. Cause I knew that, I knew that psychology background could be very successful. Um, and so I started branding it as, you know, if you, if you go with, with just data science alone, you know, you're in there, you've got all the data, you big data, you're, 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 you know, um, finding all these insights, what you're missing then is the human side, the, the people, right. And that's what people analytics is. And I think it's a combination of both the people as well as the analytics. Um, and so that, uh, was, and I still believe that. I, I think I think that that is um is one of the the secrets to my success. I suppose is I as I I, I balance them equally. I never want to just be data driven for the sake of being data driven. I think you have to take into account the psychology of behavior as well. Um, I think the other couple of things, and that's kind of getting into people analytics. I think kind of growing up in people analytics, a couple of things that that I look for um when I am kind of grooming my leaders. Um, one is uh, kind of a unicorn skill set, which is um, good at the good at the math, right? Good at the good at the technical stuff. Can you know can um, run everything that you need to run? Um, so being a proficient analyst, and also being um, able to translate that technical result in a way that non-technical audiences understand it. So some communication aspect there, and I think it's. It's not just being like good at presenting. I don't think it's that. I, I really think it is be, being able to translate. Um, mm. And then the last piece that uh, that's that's coming to me um, as a as a strength that I think has helped me um, be successful with uh, with leaders even at a very early age is um, I I'm always uh, looking at the research that we're doing or the analysis that we're doing and putting a strategic bend to it. There's no research for the sake of research in, in the applied world. There's, oh, that's interesting, is not a reaction that I want when I am sharing insights with, with a, you know, with a business leader, with a, with a decision maker. Um, so I, I strive to always leave them with, here are the recommendations and 
you know, I'm happy to dive in more, but this is, this is where we are. You know, this is where we are today. And these are some steps that you can take right now Mm. Um, and tie that to, you know, their roadmap or where they want to go. And so it's, it's less about, Hey, here's your descriptives and we're looking good. And, you know, you increased X percent and more about, okay, that's fine. But like, where are we, where do we think we're going to go in the future? And are we going to, are we going to get there based on, you know, our, our historic performance or different scenarios? So, um, yeah, so I think that that's kind of my, my, (laughs) my advice. Well, I say it not only for the perspective of people who aspire to get into the career, but also for CHROs and others who would either be hiring or partnering with people analytics leaders, uh, because many, I would go so far to say most, have not done that, have not hired somebody with a the skill set. Because the profession, although I've been in it for 20 years, give or take, it's still relatively new. It hasn't caught hold in every organization, particularly to enable scale. One of the things I want to call out that you shared uh, and it's a bit embedded is uh, curiosity and aka research design uh, because if you hear a business problem or challenge you know how do you unpack that and actually create a project around it so people feel heard Um, and then there's the aspect of identifying appropriate data so not only the data that you have but going out and creating data that can shed light on the dynamic can you speak to your ability or your the need of the profession rather we'll get away from you for a second <laughs> to have the have this curiosity and do effective uh, say not only research design but problem identification so we can actually create appropriate solutions yeah yeah i, I love i absolutely love that you mentioned this because you know with the um with the the movement of big data right the field started to get away from theory um, and having a theory and then having a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis. Um, and so while I grew up in theory, I, I still I still believe in theory. Um, I think kind of moving into the research question and engaging that curiosity. And if you get something that you're not expecting, why did you get it? Not just, you know, we're going to, to, to make this decision and, and run with it for our hiring process, right? But like, why do we think, why do we think this happened? Are there, are there uh, unmeasured variables? Are there covariates? Like, you know, some of the, um, some of the things that you can test out. And I, I personally just love to be surprised by findings. I, I love when, um, I love when they prove me wrong. It's a, it makes it more exciting, the digging in to figure out the, the why behind it. Well, you're a perfect example, uh, for Adam Grant's Think Again, you know, I think mm, like a scientist. I have that over here. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and having be, be thrilled and, uh, you know, experience joy in finding something new as opposed to, oh gosh, you know, I didn't think about that beforehand. I'm, yeah. I'm dumb, you know, because yeah. if we have that perspective as analysts, you know, how are our customers going to think when we're actually shedding light on the decisions sometimes that they made? And they might yes. be suboptimal, but so they have yes. to create that growth mindset there, hopefully if they don't have it already. So, you know, I, if someone's listening here, I'm sure they're curious about what's having going on in Twitter and where your energy is now. And so, you know, if you want to create some, uh, share some highlights, great. But I want to go from Twitter very quickly into where we're going as a discipline as well, mm. because to your point, um, there is so much data out there. We can get lost in it. We can, you know, analysis paralysis, all these cliches, but it's also the case where it's 
almost irresponsible to not leverage these data assets that are both inside our organization and out, you know, from themes like diversity, equity, inclusion to, you know, engagement and well-being and, and, and all these things. So, and I know on Pafal Live, you shared 10 points so we can <laughs> refer people, you know, over to those because it was fantastic. And I want to, again, amplify that to the world as well. But if you can talk a little bit about the projects that are gaining your attention right now and how that will relate to where we're heading as a profession. Yeah. Um, so when I when I think about the future, it's more around where I think we need to go. Um, and sometimes we might have the the technology or the data, and I think sometimes we're still trying to work on that, right? Um, it, it's kind of like um, you know, it, it's kind of like that the evolution of of machine learning and computing as well. Like we had the idea, but we needed to wait for the technology to catch up with it. Um, but kind of three things popped in my mind um, within people analytics. These are, I think, either going to be um, very necessary or are starting to be necessary now. Um, and at the highest level, to me, that's bringing in the market and the industry data. So looking externally, I think so much historically within people analytics was what are my employees doing? And my, you know, my company is a special snowflake and we're all of, you know, our recommendations are going to be very different from this, you know, from our competitor. And, you know, sometimes yes, but a lot of times there's a lot of similarities. Um, and so I think it's really important to have the external knowledge, the external research to understand how similar are you to your competitors so that you are able to, um, potentially get a, um, a footing in the market ahead of them, right? So I think that the kind of the worker talent um, and the, the competitive landscape is going to continue to be, you know, difficult, especially for the hard to hire skills. Um, and so I think people analytics can play an even bigger role there than um, historically we, uh, we have as a, as a field, um, you know, and thinking about, uh, identifying emerging skill sets, right? Identifying talent gaps in the current workforce, building the predictive models. I know we talked about that at, at, on one of our one of our episodes, but building predictive models for things like headcount and hiring. And um, I, I just, I think that there's, there's a lot more that can be done. And I think the difficult part right now, um, if I, if I think about the, the industry and kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing from, um, from my team, my peers, my connections is, Okay, we have those capabilities, but it's how do you how do you communicate those? How do you share those with the decision makers in a way that they can they can act on it? Um, and so I think that's a that's a bit of a challenge um, for the for the field right now is that translation piece, which I hit on earlier. Um, yeah. May I jump in real quick because I, I just want to yeah. highlight uh, again something that you shared because number one, I'm so glad you went there, it, and I couldn't agree more. People Analytics has kind of looked at its existing workforce and things like engagement and turnover and you know stuff that was available. And right. it rarely, going back 
you know, 10 plus years did not have the context of which that dynamic sat, you know, okay, this right. is an organization. It's not on an Island. It's sitting within the right. system. <laughs> so understanding that greater system talent markets, in other words, is now not only available, it's, it's sometimes just writing a check and consuming that data, but it has to be juxtaposed and the narrative has to be built around it. And again, to highlight something that you said earlier, which I think is hugely important for our listeners, is you actually made recommendations. You're bringing your subject matter expertise and your unique visibility to the fore and putting forth ideas that can hopefully guide decision-making downstream. So you know, thank you for amplifying that or, or sharing that. So is that something that is an expectation that has been set for you that you provide recommendations within this greater context? Or is that something that you've just kind of done on your own as a matter of habit? Yeah. I, um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't in any job description that I've ever, <laughs> that I've ever applied for. Um, I think, uh, I, I think it was, I can't, I honestly, I can't remember how it, how it came to be. Um, but I definitely pushed for it because I, I do, I do like to keep um, keep abreast of the field, and I do like to um, understand kind of what uh, what's next, right, for for people analytics, and, and try to get ahead of that. So not just from like not what's next for for Twitter or our competitors, but what's next in in our field as well. Um, and my biggest uh, my biggest step um, toward understanding the external you know market research was um, was lucky enough to hire a um, amazing. Um, labor economist uh, to to my team at Twitter, Paria, um, just phenomenal, um, and she has she's really taught me a ton in terms of like how to think about supply and demand, um, and some of these these kind of tangential things that yes can fall within people analytics, but also could sit within within other places. Um, so um, I'm so thankful that um, that she's brought that perspective into um, into our team and. Yeah, I've just uh, learned a ton from her. So just to play something back, you have a labor economist, you have uh, data scientists or an IO psychologist, you have people who do reporting, and it's all under this umbrella of people analytics. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah. That's accurate. And I'm calling that out because there's a variety of disciplines within the discipline. It's not just, right. you know, one thing. So, and as we proceed through time, you know, when I started in the field, our principal customer was the HR leadership team. And now it's way beyond, it's at scale. Oftentimes it goes down to the individual. So you know, who are you serving uh, beyond the HR leadership team? Um. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, you know, um, the the employees, the managers, the leaders, uh, the C-suite, the CEO. And um, I mean, we're responsible for board reporting. Uh, it's it's um, it's it's everyone. And I think that's important for it to be everyone, too. You know, I am I'm very passionate about I grew up uh, in the survey space right with um, with that um, startup. And I'm, I'm very, very passionate about not asking employees to take surveys and give me answers um, if I'm not going to do something with that information for the betterment of, of them or the company or the workforce. Um, and I think it's so important to communicate the results back to the survey takers, right? If I'm asking them to participate, I 
if I'm in their shoes, I would expect to know what the results of this are. Like how different am I from, you know, my, my peers, right. In terms of the, in terms of the results here. And so, um, I think it's, I, I think we've got to have, I think we've got to have stakeholders at, at every different level, um, of, of the company. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that is important if certain uh, decisions, uh, are going to take hold. In other words, by its very nature, people analytics require systematic thinking, systematic analyses, and oftentimes the interventions require a systematic approach. And so if you don't have multiple stakeholders on the same page with a similar goal, you know, there's there's cracks that can ensue and, you know, things don't get done in the desired way. That's my own, you know, thinking that I've heard from you and others in the past. So as we think about themes like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and employee well-being, which I know you're both passionate about and have been priorities for you, on those themes, or you know, if you want to pick one, you know, is great. But how do you see that that people annex playing a role in enabling initiatives that help? Um, I don't want to say solve, but you know, help advance those causes. Yeah, I mean, I think it. To your, to your point earlier about um, kind of the systematic approach, regardless of the, the topic area, right? So regardless of if this is something around diversity representation or if there's something around employee engagement, I think the steps are, are kind of the same. Um, there is an initial like discovery where you can kick off a needs analysis. You can analyze already collected data, right? Understand what you what you can, um, and then make a recommendation on kind of the the, the future of the, the program or the initiative. Um, then, of course, you have to track that. Um, you have to monitor it. You have to project if you're going to hit your goals. Um, and then at the end, you know, I think people analytics is extremely important for evaluating the ROI of that particular program. Like, is it is it a valid process. Did, by taking this training, was it actually worth the employee's time? You know, and worth it, what does that mean? Is that worth it in terms of it's going to advance their career? It's worth it in terms of it's a it's a retention lever? Um, and, and so I think we're really responsible for owning the measurement process from beginning to end um, that is, you know, hand in hand with the program itself, but is not... Um, but it, but I think that that falls outside of the program owner, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. And it brings up this question. When I was in role a long time ago, uh, there's an HR strategy that was put together and I would be asked after the strategy was in place, how are we going to measure it? Mm. And I have since advocated vehemently that I and others like me need to be engaged at the, the beginning, beginning of the process, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we can help understand the processes and the data these processes are producing and goes to technology selection and, and so forth. So number one, what do you think about that comment? Number two, what is the governance structure that you think is healthy that you would advocate? And again, I imagine it depends organization to organization, but I also believe uh, that you in this role of people honest leader have a unique ability to align formerly disparate processes and individuals. And sure. you know, so are you part of the strategy, the HR or talent strategy formulation process ongoing? And who's involved with that? So I asked 18 questions in there. So that's a no-no. Slap myself on the wrist. <laughs> but but again, you know, being involved in the process and the governance structure. 
Yeah. Um, so yes, I, I would say that, that I am involved in the process as I do sit on the, the people leadership team. Um, so I have a, I have a equal seat at the table. Um, and that's immensely helpful in terms of, um, seeing different teams come forward with their proposals and then being able to, you know, advise or recommend who from my team can help kind of bring that into life or who from my team they should partner with for the measurement aspects of that. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, so I think it's, um, it's very helpful to have that visibility. Um, I think the other piece of, um, of what you were saying, Al, or one, one of the other questions is kind of this, this governance, right? Um, and I think, people analytics, you know, it it can't, can't be a silo and it can't serve only one silo. It really has to stretch across the entire HRTA remit. And, and I like it because of that, because I, you get to connect the dots among the different programs. You get to help your, you know, performance team, right? Understand the connections between performance and selection. Um, And it, it really, I feel like that's one of the most worthwhile opportunities is when you have that ability that you're looking at that, you know, across the whole department view and you're able to make those connections and make, you know, two seemingly separate programs or processes actually connected and consistent. And I love that. Yeah. I, I love your narrative around it. And I, again, could not agree more. It's uh it's exciting for that reason. I will say, however, that not all leadership teams get that. Not only CHROs, but leadership teams get that. So that leads into you know, one of my final questions here before we get into three rapid fire questions. We got like <laughs> 10, 12 minutes left. Uh, what would be your advice or coaching to CHROs or other you know, CEOs, leadership teams who are either creating this capability or looking to advance the capability. Uh, what would you say? And particularly as we move forward in time where, you know, we have hybrid work, we have, you know, uh, a variety of dynamics from well-being, scarcity of talent in certain job families. So what would be your advice? Yeah. Um, so I, this is a hard, this is a hard one. Um, I think, I think my first bit of advice would be, be very, picky in the selection process of who that individual is, who's going to lead, going to lead this team. Because I think that you can, um, fall into a pitfall of, um, uh, not being as strategic of a partner. And I think a CHRO needs someone who is going to get into the weeds when necessary and can speak to the data, but can also then lift up and say, hey, here's what this means for our department. Here's what this means for our team. Like, here's what this means for the company. And here's why it's important right now. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that back to the, the kind of uniform unicorn skill set of the technical side plus the, the communication. So I, I would say that that would be top for me um, in terms of selecting of a candidate. Um, and then I would I would also say um, to to not to, to not be scared of analytics. You know, I, this doesn't happen at, at Twitter, thank goodness. Um, but in some of my consulting days, uh, I, I definitely experienced some fear of, oh my gosh, do you just have a magic wand and you, you know, make all of this, uh, into something with your black box, you know? And, um, it's not, it's not like that at all. And I, I, I think that we need to be as a field, I think we need to be, um, more transparent and, 
um, better at explaining what we're doing. Like ML, ML, fancy, fancy, everything's machine learning. It's regression, you know, like it's, um, anyway, um, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of mysticism, um, that I think can, if I'm putting myself in, in their shoes, you know, I think that that can be perceived as scary. And I, I want to be a, a true partner and I, I don't want them to shy away from me because they don't understand, you know, the value that I can bring. Right. And it's also the case where many believe they hire a data scientist and now I got people analytics and right. it takes, uh, it takes research, diverse skill sets. So oftentimes diverse people, I imagine you work with vendors. I also imagine that you, you know, not only have your core HR systems, the associated processes, but you're staging the data in, in certain ways. So, you know, there's some complexity to it, but the value proposition far outweighs the cost in most organizations. I cannot think of an exception where that wouldn't be the case. So what I'm getting at, people analytics doesn't come for free. And it's not that you hire somebody and, and magic ensues. Do you have any comments or anything to add to that notion? Yeah, um, it definitely takes time, especially if you're building up a team. So this is my Twitter being my third people analytics team that I've I've built. Um, I'd say my kind of recommendations from um, from starting from scratch is is you've got to go from bottom up and you've got to go from top down. So you've you've got to get your data foundation right. You have to ensure that you're, you know, you're collecting the data that um, will set not just obviously your team up for success, but will set the the, the department and the company up for success. Um, but at the same time, you have to be building the relationships with your leaders, with your stakeholders, understanding the business, understanding where you can lean in and, and play and partner. And, and some of that work is going to be outside of kind of a traditional people analytics repertoire. You know, some of that, some of that work is probably going to be a bit more ad hoc and being okay with that and not being, um, not being just tied to, I do, you know, this is my, this is my people analytics box. And while, you know, while your problem or your question could potentially be, you know, helpful, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here and keep building on my data. I, I think, it, I think you got to go both ways. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I got one more big question, then we'll do our three rapid fire <laughs> ones. And, okay. and if you want to add anything, you know, by all means do so. My, my question is this, is in our last episode, we were talking about, uh, and actually the one before that as well, the future of work. And you mentioned it earlier. Uh, you talked about your evolution at Georgia from thinking you're going potentially clinical to you know, IO and, and thinking about work itself. So here we are in 2022, and there's so many ways work can get done. It can get work done by employees, contractors, consultants. It can be done by robotic automation, AI. And so understanding the nature of work and what I'm calling continuous work transformation, but you have a very unique narrative around how the future of work relates to the data-driven decision-making that you're enabling. So my pointed question, if you buy into this continuous work transformation notion, how is people analytics going to facilitate conscious work design and organizational design? Yeah, I mean, I think we already are. Um, I think that the the biggest change that I foresee 
um, is the different amounts of data that people analytics will be getting access to and will have on, you know, at, at hand. And so I'm, I'm thinking of things like, yes, we talked about the external data to, to help with um, like headcount planning, strategic sourcing, capacity modeling. Um, but I'm also thinking about um, data that we are uh, maybe not collecting within the HR remit, right? So Slack, um, email, um, any type of, of chat, any type of communication. And there's just a wealth of kind of actual behavioral data that is behavioral beyond just a, a promotion or a hire, which are like big behavioral events. And so I think we're going to actually be able to, and I think it's going to become table stakes to really just understand the small behavioral changes within an employee life cycle, like we now do with, um, with employee attitudes. Hmm. Um, so, you know, from a design, from a design perspective, um, in thinking about kind of best practices, you know, I, I don't have any, um, I don't have any silver bullets. Um, but the biggest one t- that comes into that comes into my head from from the research is this need for personalization and this need for choice and this need for working the best way that that you work, right? Um, and I think that that's I think that that's not necessarily new, but I think with COVID, um, folks, uh, companies have started to embrace it a bit more. I think the next shift, and this isn't a very big shift, it's more of a just a mind shift, is going to be, okay, um, I don't need you, you know, nine hours a day these times. Like, I just need you to make sure that you get this, this, and this project done. And if you get it done a lot faster and your quality is good, you know, like, fine. Like I'll take it. It's a, it's got to move from like a, a, um, hours based, you know, work is the nine to five into, um, this is the work product. Mm. Um, and, and I, I think that that's going to be kind of our, our next step there. Plus what you were saying about automation, um, and, and tooling. I mean, that's just exponentially going to be increasing and has been right. So constantly staying on top of the different skill sets and with the different skill sets comes the different data sources. Uh, and so I, I think it's a, I think it's a, um, <laughs> I think it's just a natural evolution. I'm, I'm super excited to see, um, kind of this next step and what I'm thinking is kind of these smaller, um, behavioral, uh, bits of data. Um, but then also what's beyond that. Yeah. Uh, gosh, thank you for saying that. That makes me uh, smile because to emphasize a point we touched on earlier, it's not only going to benefit the organization at, at, as a you know, large entity, uh, but it's going to uh, help team organization. It's going to help the individual him or herself manage his or her capacity. And that's when I want to sneak in one more question before the rapid fire. Uh, you mentioned capacity. You and I have talked about it before. Uh, what, how, what, how are you defining it and why is it important? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think capacity goes hand in hand with budget and headcount planning. And I think, I think it should, um, if not, if not be more frequent, you know, especially for roles that are, um, contingent on the number of workers or the number of customers, right. Um, as, and those roles tend to have a, um, natural question of, well, do we do contractors or do we do FTEs, right? Do we outsource this entirely? Um, and so I think that that's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a little less traditional people analytics, right? But if you can model, if you can model attrition and you can model 
headcount, you can model capacity. And, and I think that that just starts to open up the door to what else, what else you can model and how else can you apply, you know, these modeling techniques to, um, to the business. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's been a blind spot for many because there's, I'll just throw work at people and they'll figure it out. And, you know, under understanding capacity, you can see what work's not going to get done. You can allocate that work elsewhere. And so, yes, I think there's a lot of value to be delivered. So thank you for highlighting. So a lot of efficiency to unlock. hundred percent, hundred percent. So let's get into rapid fire questions. You ready? Ready. Okay. So what is your favorite genre of music? or genres genres um so this is um <laughs> this is very odd i think uh combination but i love hard rock music which no one expects me to i will jam <laughs> out to metallica avenge sevenfold rise against like love it um and <laughs> outstanding and then on the other hand, um, I absolutely love big band and Frank Sinatra and, you know, the, the good old music of the nice. 20s, 30s and 40s. So a little bit of a mixed bag there. Outstanding. Well, we share uh, taste in music just for the record. So good. That's good. Oh, which one? <laughs> Both, Both, actually. Both, oh, actually. okay. Yeah, I grew up with big band with records with my parents and, uh, oh. you know, rock. I, you know, I got too many cut off sleeve shirts to admit. So <laughs> 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 um, I might still have my ACDC shirt. Um, love it. What, love do you, it. <laughs> what do you do for fun in your spare time? Or is people analytics your fun? <laughs> people analytics is fun. Of course, people analytics is fun. Um, I'd say my I've got two other passion areas. Um, one is uh, from just forever, um, and that is ballet. I did ballet all growing up. Um, I was a pre-professional ballet dancer, ballerina, whatever you want to call them. It's always sounded so funny to me, um, and I. I just love it. It's beautiful. I, I love the discipline. I think honestly, that's how I made it through grad school was having, um, you know, grew up in that, that discipline of, of dancing. Um, and then the other one is um, I absolutely love real estate and interior design. Absolutely love it. Um, we, uh, my husband and I have a few vacation properties that we, we buy and we fix up and we, and we rent out. Um, and it's just such a nice, it's such a nice hobby, but here's the nerdy part about this. Um, when we were moving, uh, to San Francisco, um, I was of course scouring, you know, Redfin, Zillow, all of the, you know, all of the, those sites. And, um, I was able, <laughs> I was able to download housing market data, historic housing market data that had variables like square feet and, you know, um, uh, number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms. Does it have a garage? I built a regression model uh, to start predicting <laughs> what um, what a good uh, uh, offer price would be, you know, within a certain standard deviation. Um, and I was very successful. <laughs> I bet you were. I bet you were. <laughs> that is outstanding. That is fantastic. Thank you for sharing. And if I'm going to be buying property uh, in the near future, you are my first call. So thank you. Well, it's a good example of how you can use modeling uh, for other data <laughs> for other topics. Data-driven decision-making right? right there. There we go. Yeah. 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 So last question. Um, books, uh, individuals, podcasts, whatever that has inspired you recently. I love reading. 
I read all the time. I'm such a bookworm. I am um, one of those people that not only rereads books multiple times, but also I, I have to have two or three books going at the same time. Like I, I, I need that <laughs> variety or ability to switch around. Um, I am either reading academic um, or, or business related books. My, the one that inspired me um, early on was um, Heckman and Oldham, um, uh, 1980 um, work redesign. Um, it's based on um, their work on the the job characteristics model of the of the ni- of 1975 and 76, um, and then for fun reading, Margaret Atwood, anything Margaret Atwood. I liked her before there were TV shows. I have read all of her novels, and my most favorite is The Blind Assassin, of which I have read, no lie, five times. Wow. So you know that, well, you're inspiring me to read both now. So (laughs) don't be quizzing me, though, particularly on the latter one. It sounds like you know it really well. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Any final closing comments? This is so much fun, Al. Thank you for... Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for spreading the the word of, of people analytics and the future of work. It's um it's so needed right now, helping other companies that, you know, might not be as advanced within the space or might not have the the budget um that that Twitter does. So um thank you for your work. Well, thank you for yours and uh, appreciate you sharing your stories. And uh, again, look forward to seeing you next week there in the ATL. And uh, oh my gosh, so excited. Yeah. Well, it's very hot. Just so you know. In August in Atlanta, really? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again, Laura. You be well and uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafal, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and coworkers and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn, follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active as can be, and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheikh, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.